Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Today's teaching text comes from Luke 14, 1 through 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts of the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they might invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. So, Lord, as we come into this new year, I I pray that... um, I pray that these things that we talk about, these songs that we sing, the ways that uh, we want to give back to the community you've placed us in, I pray all of these things would um, bring honor to you, that it would bring a smile to your face. Um, as we look at your word now, I pray that um, we would be willing as people to evaluate um, what our dinner tables look like, what our practices look like, how fast we eat and how we need to slow down. All of these things, I pray, um, that you would show us and teach us um, today so that, um, so that we might love our neighbor as ourselves, but we also might love you more as we leave this place. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, throughout Luke's gospel, this is, this is in Luke here, Jesus is found repeatedly creating space for other people. And before we, we get into looking at all these passages uh, where Jesus is around the table with people like and unlike him, what I want to do is I want to remind us of a theology that sort of should undergird us. And, and there's no better time than the new year to actually be thinking about this because what we're about to see Jesus do can and quite frankly should change the way that we see other people. Jesus holds a conviction of the Imago Day. This is foundational in the book of Genesis is that um, every single person you've ever met, regardless of race, class, gender, belief system, is created in the image of God. And because every person you've ever met is created in the image of God, they are uh, worthy of 
dignity and respect. And this is what we're about to see in the passage. But um, what, I, what I think, why I believe this is so um, foundational and important is, um, you know, we live in that time of social media where there's, there's tensions that arise, right? We, we hold opinions, and, and, and the, all these opinions are good and fine, right? We, we want to advocate in so many ways. We're a passionate people in that way. And oftentimes what happens is, is we believe in the Imago Dei for our side, but it's often missed for the other. And what Jesus begins to show us is that the other is foundational to understanding how it is that we find what we're talking about is place or space. This is my favorite quote by Henry Nouwen. Um, it says this, in a world full of strangers, Estranged from their own past, culture, and country, from their neighbors, friends, and family, from their deepest self and their God, we witness a painful search for a hospitable place where life can be lived without fear and where community can be found. Hospitality, therefore, means primarily the creation of a free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them a space where change can take place. This is what we are intuitively doing as a people. We're longing for place. Is there a way that I can be known where I can find, um, I think a really big word in our time is safety. Is there a place where I can exist fully as myself being known? Uh, Right before I met my wife, um, I didn't know it. I can articulate it now. I was asking these questions. Where's my place? Who are my people? And in that time, I was really fortunate. I had been working at a church for about two years, and I had really, um, I, my, my family was in Arizona, and I was distant from them for the last six years at that point. And uh, I found myself in a, in a, in a place um, in Kansas City where I was like, you know what? Actually, I'm finding place with these people at this church. They're almost like my family. But I was actually looking for something more. And um, I, I'm, I was reflecting on this over the last week. I just spent a week with my wife's family, and, and really I was like, that's my family now, right? That, those are my people, and they welcomed me in. I'll never forget um, one of the first times um, Katie invited me to meet her parents. Um, my father-in-law is like a frat bro, um, Kansas University, so it's like Ralph Lauren polos, like pink and like blue shorts, and like I show up in like a hoodie, and I was like, I am so out of place, Right? I was like, why, why am I always so underdressed when I'm around these people? And over time, you know, maybe I changed a little bit how I dressed uh, around them. I was trying to impress them a little bit more. But I found place in their family. And now I would say it's just my family. And this is what I think almost, almost we, we know this to be intuitively true, right? That we're looking for place. We're looking for a place of belonging. But I think oftentimes it's important to just say that's actually what I so desire, I actually want to be a part of a community where I show up and, or if I don't show up, I missed. Somebody, somebody wondered if I was there, right? It, it mattered that I got an invitation even outside of the group, you know, maybe to a, a hangout. And that's kind of the space that we're looking for. And I, one of the things I want to point out about this is the word free space. There's so many organized and structured spaces that the, the ability to have a free space where we're allowed to exist, where the ability to become a friend can happen, um, is so important. 
And this is the invitation here of Jesus, and in only way that Jesus can do, he is taking socially acceptable practices and he's turning them on uh, their their heads. So let me show you a handful of passages here. The first one, is, the first meal in Luke's gospel, and I'll go through these fairly quickly, um, is Luke chapter five, verses twenty-seven to thirty-one. Um, It's the calling of his first disciple here. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up and left everything and followed him. So right away you're thinking, no big deal. IRS guy starts to follow Jesus. But in the eyes of the religious leaders and the original readers, this would have actually been really scandalous, right? Um, Tax collectors were a a part of a despised system. Um, Levi would have been considered uh, ritually unclean. And um, for uh, his reputation, uh, he would have had the reputation of greed being associated with the Roman occupiers. And yet, Levi moves from Jesus' invitation to follow him to what? Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And you'd think, okay, well, Levi has understood who Jesus is. Maybe he's going to change up the guest list, you know, like a little bit. But look what he does. A large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to the sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners, right? Jesus is breaking with cultural norms and sitting around the table with people most unlike him. And he has a a sort of inclusivity about him in this way. But I think this is what's so cool if you just kind of sat down and read Luke start to finish. He's not only willing to sit with those who are considered unclean, he's also willing to sit with those who um, would have spent their entire lives trying to present themselves as clean. Just a few chapters later in chapter 7, it says this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at his tables. Similar to, to our passage in chapter 14, he's sitting at the house of a Pharisee. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisees who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And it's clear to me in reading it, this woman has actually brought her reputation into the room. These people seem to know who she was. And the custom in this time, just a little bit of background here, is the custom in this time would actually permit the needy to come and eat leftovers of the meal, but they would be permitted at the end of the meal. This woman is entering into the beginning of the meal or maybe into the middle, and her intention is not leftovers, but her intention is actually the person of Jesus. And I love this moment because... Um, There's a lot of of dynamics at work, but she's pushing past the outcast status. She's pushing past the um, judgment, crying, bringing something, a gift to Jesus. And you sort of wonder, um, you, you catch some of it in their response, but what are the other people thinking? Is there a level of disgust in them? Is there shock? Um, Is there that weird, like, embarrassment or pity for the woman or for Jesus? Like, oh, Jesus, you don't have to be subject, you know, to that. And what Jesus ultimately does um, with her gesture is he forgives her sins, he commends her, and he sends her with a blessing. 
Jesus is working again with these um, power dynamics, and he's crossing constricting cultural and social barriers. And what he's doing is he's graying the lines between who's in and who's out. And so let me just say these four things today. I'll kind of, kind of, kind of go through them with uh, a little bit of scripture each time here. For Jesus, the table is a place of recognition, mutuality, celebration, and commitment. So here's the first one. For Jesus, the table is a place of recognition. In each instance, Jesus has a way of recognizing the person right where they are. And, and, and you've already seen that in these passages, but let me show you in our passage here in Luke chapter 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, I love this little note, he was being carefully watched, right? Everything he's doing is being scrutinized. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts of the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Um, the abnormal swelling here is uh, likely a medical condition called dropsy. It's, um, it's swelling in the skin caused by fluid buildup in, in the tissue. And what, what really is happening here is, and I, I should say again, is that this man is being considered unclean and unfit to be around the table. Uh, many scholars note, uh, I read a couple commentaries on this, and they each noted that um, the first word here is one Sabbath. And this skin condition is not um, one that needs to be healed right away. And so uh, scholars make note that um, this could wait. Like, this could wait till tomorrow. But this is the brilliant thing about Jesus is that he recognizes what I said in the beginning about um, the dignity, right? The Imago Dei. But Jesus also recognizes human need, whether that be a physical need, a need for healing, but also a need for recognition like with the woman. He's fully aware of the needs around him and he's recognizing them. One of the best books on hospitality is a book by Christine Pohl called uh, Making Room. And this just blew my mind about the power of recognition. She says, people view hospitality as quaint and tame, partly because they don't understand the power of recognition. When a person who is not valued by society is, is received by a socially re respected person or group as a human being with dignity and worth, small transformations occur. The person's self-assessment is so often tied to societal assessment is enhanced. There's, there's more to this quote, but I want to pause there really quick. Um, earlier this week, um, Rose and I were getting on the train. Um, we were uh, uh, getting on the C train, and it, it came down the stairs. And um, one train car was packed. Like, it just showed up. I was like, Rose, run, run, run. One car is packed. One car is empty. And I, why do we make this mistake? Get on the full car. Like, there's a reason that one is empty and this one is full, but I, I made the mistake. I got on the empty one. And, of course, uh, there was an unhoused man, like, laying across the bench. We get on the train, and we're standing in the corner. And I look down at Rose. Rose has her gloves on because it's cold outside, and she's going like this. And she's covering her nose. She's smelling her gloves. And I look down at her. I said, are you okay? And she goes, it smells terrible. And I was like, oh, yeah, it does, buddy. And everyone on this train car has moved to the other end or to the other car because this man um, smells. 
And uh, Rose and I end up moving a little bit down the car, but I, I was just reminded as a dad that this was just such a good and teachable moment. One of the things Rose and I talk about regularly um, is that when we see people in need, we need to be both careful and compassionate. I think that um, in, in, in this book, Making Room, uh, Christine Pohl does an amazing job of talking about creating an environment of welcome and care and safety. And I know over the last year, year and a half, that's been something that's on all of our minds. How is it that I actually, as a person, hold that idea of the Imago Dei and care and dignity and worth and value and balance safety? Because you deserve that as well. And so I, I, I lean over to Rose and I'm discussing with her what we actually have to offer as a people um, in these scenarios. And sometimes, I, I, I've learned this from my wife, Katie, but sometimes what it is is it's, it's praying. God, is there, is there something you want me to do? Why is it that I feel so like, uh, uh, like, ur- like um, urged to do something, like something is stirring in me? There's that nudge um, to, to, to if there's something I can do. And Rose and I ended up talking about how what we often have to offer people is this, is recognition, a smile, a nod. Um, and th- that allows someone what she's talking about. She says it way better than I do here. Um, a small transformation can occur in another person. So this is how she continues her quote here. She says, because such actions are countercultural, right? What is, what is the norm? The norm is the next train car, no recognition, headphones on, I'm, I'm moving on, right? And, and sometimes, you know what, our, our compassion is like t- totally to the floor drained, and that's the response. But listen to what she says. These are witness to the larger community, which is then challenged to reassess its standards and methods of valuing. Many people who are not valued by the larger community are essentially invisible to it. When people are socially invisible, their needs and concerns are not acknowledged, and no one even notices the injustices they suffer. Hospitality can begin a journey towards visibility and respect. This is the first step, is recognition of another person. And don't forget how this passage, uh, chapter 14, started. It said, one Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Jesus is being watched, and Jesus is simultaneously exposing who has the power in the room. He knows culturally the, the host has the power, and he's pushing back uh, against the, uh, the religious and cultural barriers to actually expose uh, the power dynamics that are actually at work in the larger community. And this is what he ends up telling him in verse 7. When you notice how the guests pick the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the seat of least importance. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes... He will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your guests. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Sometimes I read things like this, and I'm like, I think Jesus is just really, really practical. You want to avoid a very awkward situation? Go sit in the lowest seat and then get invited to the main table. But Jesus is hyper, hyper, hyper aware of the power dynamics. He understands the hierarchical nature of humanity and how, left to our own devices, who are we going to eat with? Who are we going to spend time with? We're going to spend time with people who look, think, and act exactly as we do. 
And what is his invitation? Be mindful and recognize others. The table is a place of recognition. And and I love that he highlights this word humility there. Because it's a place where humility is actually truly possible. Because when we come to the table, we come actually, we we, we probably wouldn't announce this, most of us, but what we're actually coming with is need. First, sure, to be fed, but then to be known for who we are. Do you see me? Do you think I'm funny, right? Do you, do you see my desires, right? That, that when we would come to the table that um, maybe if, if exposed, a weakness would actually be welcomed or cared for. And so we don't show up to the table proud, like this is ours, we did all this. But Jesus actually invites us into a life of recognition. And, and let me just say this, and I'll move on. Um, if, if maybe in this season you're reevaluating what you believe or you're like, you know what, I, I, I like a lot of what Jesus says. I'm not sure I believe all the things about him dying and resurrecting, all that. Um, what if Jesus actually knows exactly what it, what it is that you desire? What if Jesus knows exactly what it is that you need? And what if he actually wants to meet those needs and we actually, the work needs to be that we, we need to become humble enough Um, to bring that to him in recognition. I'll just leave that there for you. For Jesus, the table is a place of recognition. Second, the table is a place of mutuality. Jesus is living in that tension, right? In in, in chapter 7, he's labeled a drunkard and a glutton and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And yet, in our passage, he's at the house of a prominent Pharisee. So he's exposing those power dynamics. He's calling people to humility. And yet, what we're finding is a sort of level playing field here. Um, Christine Pohl goes on in her book. She says, because eating is something every person must do, mealtime has a profoundly egalitarian dimension. No matter what our backgrounds or assets, we are all eaters and drinkers. It's the great leveler, right? We spend time primarily, like I said before, with people who think, act, dress like we do, or with people who have a sort of same socioeconomic status or cheer for the same team that we do. And what is actually at work, if you're to kind of peel back a few layers, is that our culture subverts our faith. Our culture subverts our faith. There's so many dichotomies and dividing walls that are built up that, um, that have really built friendships and dinner tables that are uh, very tribal. Right, And what Jesus is actually speaking to here is he's actually transcending these forms of of tribalism, or maybe a word that would actually be helpful here is he's transcending forms of nationalism. And Christianity is truly a global religion. The the church is growing rapidly right now in the southern hemisphere, in South America, and in Africa. And when Jesus speaks to the mutuality of the table here, he's talking about the ability to come to the table and to listen to other people's walks of life, their backgrounds and their practices and their history. And the invitation is actually into nurturing a more multicultural and diverse community. One of the greatest meals I ever had um, was in Poland. I was there on on a trip uh, learning uh, about like how to do camps for kids. And I got invited to this dinner um, with an older gentleman um, who was a part of this ministry. And uh, we showed up, and they had a tabletop cooker. I think it's actually called like a raclette, um, but it's like a four-tiered tabletop cooker. Um, the grill was on the top. You, it's electric. You just plug this thing in. And then it has three tiers of drawers. And in the drawers were you know vegetables and potatoes and sauces, and everything is getting warmed up. It ended up being like three and a half hour dinner, 
And we just went around sharing stories. And I don't even know why he was interested in asking us about stories. When he told stories, it was about growing up in communism, pre-freedom, you know, from communist Russia in Poland prior to 1989. I'm just like soaking in this guy's stories. And he just, you know, he would share something. And he was like, what was it like at your table growing up? I'm like, I have nothing to share, you know? Like, we, you know, we, we, we cook stuff in the microwave and watch TV, you know? And he's just sharing stories, but he just wants to keep learning about us. And it was this three and a half hours of just mutually sharing stories, a beautiful moment where we're like, we actually, he's, curi- he's genuinely curious about us because we're different from the way that he grew up. And there's a mutuality at the table. Next is this. For Jesus, the table is a place of celebration, so we looked at chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 14. I know there's a lot of scriptures. Um, and in Luke chapter 15, which is one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, you probably wouldn't actually even think about the, the food aspect of it. It's about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the lost son or the prodigal son. Um, the son has left home. He squandered his inheritance. And one of the features that we, when we read this passage we actually miss is that um, the son goes to the father and says, Father, I want my, my share of inheritance. And essentially what he's saying is, is, Father, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'd like to come home. Even as a hired servant, I'd be willing to come home. And then this is what it says. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, it's like gospel stuff right here. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. And so the table for Jesus is, a, is also a place of celebration. And we intuitively know this to be true, right? What, what do we do? We eat weddings. We eat funerals, right? A celebration of someone's life. <laughs> Tuesday night community group, we eat, right? And one of my favorite things that really has happened over the last year in terms of celebration um, in the life of our church. And, and you know, we, we gather for community group every week. And, um, you know, there's mourning going on too. You know, we're praying for each other. There's, there's a lot to lift up in prayer, but there's just a lot of life happening um, that we can celebrate, right? Birthdays and promotions and sobriety and new jobs and seeing God answer our prayers. I think that was a huge theme in the fall for our church is just celebrating the fact that God is answering our prayers, um, engagements, children being born. And these are just ways of coming around and saying, like, there's a lot that actually where we can look back and say, God has actually been faithful um, to us as a people, and there are things to celebrate. Here's the last one. For Jesus, the table is a place of commitment. Just after our passage, we, uh, Christine didn't read this part. Um, Jesus is sharing more parables about the kingdom of God. And um, this is what he says right after in verse 16. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. So notice, they're about to make all these excuses. They've already got the invitation, right? They already got the save the date in the mail. The event is about to begin, and someone has come to pick them up. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I just bought a field, and I must go see it. Please excuse me. 
Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Um, scholars note that um, if you're going to go look at a field, you don't do it in the evening at the banquet time because it's dark out, right? So these are excuses. The, the last one may be a legitimate one. I just got married, newly married. You can get out of anything, I guess, at that point. And Jesus is definitely speaking about the kingdom of God here, and it's definitely a parable. But I think there's really deep wisdom here for us um, in 2024, young people in the city with unlimited options. I don't know about you, but it has become easier than ever to not follow through on your commitments, to bail on plans, to not show up, to not be accountable to anybody for your time. And it comes with a serious confession. If, please, don't, please don't mistake conviction for judgment here. I, I often get to Tuesday night, our community group. Tuesday is generally a, a long day for me. Um, it's still early in the week, but it's like a full day. Um, you know, I'm thinking about, oh, we don't have anything planned for dinner. We got to get the kids to bed. We got to clean up. It would just be easier to cancel and to veg out tonight. Like, and I know it's only Tuesday and we host the group, you know? And so I'm like, wow, this is hard, right? And what I think is so important is um, our fidelity. Like, is our word worth anything anymore in our commitments, right? Like, I know so many people, I do this, we, we actually double book. We say yes to two things at the same time, and then we say, you know what, I'm going to wait till the very last minute to cancel, right? Um, Resi actually has this new feature. Um, I, I learned this the hard way. Um, I was like, oh, I don't know, I, I want to go on a date night with Katie. I don't know if we should do this place or this place. So I made the reservation, and then I was like, I'm going to make that reservation too. It won't let you anymore. It won't let you make two reservations at the same time. What am I trying to do? I'm trying to keep my options open till the very last minute, right? Uh, open Table estimates that 28% of reservations are, uh, are no-shows. And, it, and uh, I, of course, this is why now, what do you have to do? You have to put your credit card in, right? And the number is just plummeting. I'm like, I'm not making a reservation if I got to put my credit card in, right? What does Jesus, uh, what does the book of James say? Above all, do not swear either by heaven or earth. I don't think he's talking about language here. Uh, or by oaths, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. For Jesus, the, the table is actually a place of commitment where we do the things that we say we're going to do, where we have fidelity, where um, our hearts and our desire meet our actions and our words. And I think it's so important for us in 2024, unlimited options before us. If we say we're going to be there, we be there. If, if we're not going to be there or we're not sure, we say No. Let's let our yes be yes and our no be no. And here's the last thing. I I actually don't know what to do with this last passage. I'll read it for you. I'll question it, and then we'll, we'll pray. Here's Jesus. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Here's Jesus. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see the sick or in, person, or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. I don't even think I can grasp the magnitude of what Jesus is inviting us into. 
that when we would welcome someone, when we would care for someone, when we would do an act of justice and mercy, when we would actually recognize someone, that we would be doing it to him. Mother Teresa is famous for saying, I see Jesus in every human being. I say to myself, this is hungry Jesus. I must feed him. This is sick Jesus. This one has leprosy or gangrene. I must wash him and tend to him. I serve because I love Jesus. And so when we welcome others into our homes, when we sit with others around the table, what would it be like to actually think, I'm welcoming the person of Jesus at my table? That would shift our thinking. Let's pray.